0: Lord, we are thankful for your word. When we come to a passage like this, Lord, it seems like there's a lot of um, talking back and forth, these letters that are flowing back and forth. and uh, Lord, there just seems to be this presence of opposition. And so, Lord, this morning, give us, give us hearts, Lord, that are willing to be taught, that are willing to realize what is true, that are willing to see your hand in the history of man, in particular your people. And uh, Lord, give us hearts that are willing not only to see that, but to see your unfolding plan and how even in the face of incredible opposition, Lord, you are accomplishing your purposes. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful, and Lord, may we as a church be stronger because of our time in your word today, we ask in your precious name, amen. Amen. All right, maybe seated. Opposition to the building of God's kingdom is nothing new. And we just heard a few moments ago, just during that Reformation highlight, that simply speaking what the scriptures clearly teach can be the fuel that lights the kindling of your execution. Patrick Hamilton simply affirmed the teachings of the gospel we love and hold dear. Henry Forrest was simply affirming that Patrick Hamilton had a point. George Wishart simply affirmed those basic doctrines of the Reformation. Walter Mill, in his 82nd year, still proclaimed God's truth. And what happened to them planted seeds in Scotland that would bear fruit in the wonderful and fruitful Reformation but it wasn't pretty. And friends, the issues and the arguments and the complaints that we're facing today are not weird. They're not strange doctrines that we're being accused of. They're not kind of like outlandish beliefs that we hold dear. They are simply Christianity 101. Life begins at conception. Christianity 101. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the only entryway into heaven. Christianity 101. There are only two genders. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's Christianity 101. Man's greatest problem is his sin. He's fallen short of the glory of God. Christianity 101, but in today's context, those teachings are radical and they are offensive. And we must remember that Christ or Christians didn't drift into these beliefs and positions. They've always held these to be true because they're basic Christianity 101 beliefs. But society around us and every generation is blowing with winds of different kinds of ideology and the whole while the church just keeps going on and on and on sometimes it struggles but the true church remains it's the culture that is always changing now with that as a backdrop let us consider ezra 4. so far Everything has been going well for the remnant of Israel. They had been given freedom by Cyrus in his decree to go back to Jerusalem and Judea and to uh, to live in the land, but also to restore the temple. So they answered the Lord's call. They returned to the Lord's land. They began to build the Lord's house, and they had followed the Lord's word. And at the end of chapter 3, it's joy, it's joy, it's celebration. We've laid the foundation of the temple. It's time to rejoice. They were making history, friends. This is the kind of stuff that, that they would sing about. These are the kind of stories they would read to their children from years to come. It was an epic undertaking. And then it happened. The glory and the success and the excitement of Ezra 3 turns into the difficulty and challenge of Ezra 4. Things start to get messy. They start to get hard. They start to get dangerous. And the epic adventure comes to a grinding halt. Their joy turns into decades of disappointment. And we're told right there in the beginning about this adversary or these adversaries. They're literally enemies to the people of God, seeking to undermine what God is doing through them. Now, isn't that the way of things, friends? When you answer the call to follow the Lord and you're making progress in your life, battling sin and establishing godly habits and seeking to honor the Lord with your life, Satan rears his ugly head and he wants to put a stop to it. And when your church starts to grow in depth and passion for the things of God and Genuine fellowship and Christ-sanctifying discipleship and joyful worship are taking place. Satan rears his ugly head with some kind of sin, some kind of schism, some difficulty, some challenge. But we should not be surprised. Because in 1 John 3.13, we're told, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And the reason the world hates you is because it hated me first. Don't be surprised. And Somehow, I think maybe in our American Christianity, we have this more comfortable, controlled view of the church. But friends, don't be surprised if the world turns on a dime and starts to turn on you simply because you hold to Christianity 101. The world hates you. And of course, Satan is the one who's behind the world's ideology and thinking. And yet, we are called to continue to labor for the Lord in such context. So, this morning, the proposition is this building God's house in the face of hatred. We're called to follow the example that we have here to learn from this example as a church and as individuals to keep building the Lord's house even in the face of hatred, even in the face of opposition. Friends, let's just be honest. Laboring for the Lord in the face of growing opposition is difficult, it's challenging, it's exhausting, and it's downright frustrating. And Ezra 4 will give us practical guides to help us Understand the reality of what's going on. And there's a trajectory that happens through this chapter. It kind of goes from bad to worse as things will unfold. And it's helpful here not just to see the different aspects of that progression, but also to consider how susceptible we are. See, whenever you make a commitment to the Lord, be prepared to face the enemy's unrelenting attempt to set you back. Now, let's just talk briefly here about the structure of the text. This is important or it seems really confusing. It appears that what's happening here is we have, you know, we have Zerubbabel in the city there, you know, they're trying to rebuild the temple, and then we kind of move into Xerxes in verse 6, and then Artaxerxes in verse 7 and following, and ultimately we end up with Darius. And so we think there's a chronological progression, but it's not what is taking place. In fact, verses one through five are about the rebuilding of the temple and you would include in that then verse 24, which is the conclusion of this chapter. And then in verses six through uh, through verse 23, we have this kind of parenthetical insertion into the argument that Ezra gives here uh, for illustrative purposes to say that this opposition that is started here in the rebuilding of the temple, continues on even into his day. And as the one writing of the history that took place, he's writing for an audience saying, look, not only did this happen then, but look how it's happened even till this point. So he's using this as an illustration to say that the opposition to the work of God wasn't just a small piece of time, it's been ongoing, ongoing ongoing, even until today. So why is this passage structured this way? To show us this ongoing presence of opposition. Friends, that presence of opposition hasn't stopped. It is still present even in the church today, even in our circumstances today. And we know it because we feel it, right? And we're going to learn some things then from this time in Ezra 4 about that opposition. And we're going to divide it into three sections. The first section primarily is talking about um, a strategy used against leadership. The second section is going to be about a strategy then transitioning from leadership, a strategy against the people in general. And the last section is going to be really the strategy that takes place more on official levels that will have an impact on those who want to build the kingdom of God. So let's begin here. Number one, the subtlety of hatred's friendship. This is where it all begins. There's an expression of subtle friendship, but it is ultimately a tool to get you to compromise. See if you can identify it as I read here, and it's in verse two. Now, when the adversaries or enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel the heads of the fathers' houses, and said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. See, they come as friends. They come identifying themselves as people who worship the same God. You clearly need help. It's going to be a big undertaking, and we're willing to help. And you know what? We're willing to help because we worship the same God. And you can just imagine if the workers were hearing this, oh, wow, we got a bunch of people who worship the same God, and they want to come help build the temple That's good news. Let's have them come. But see, this is leadership. And leadership is recognizing what's going on. See, they say we worship the same God as you. What's the temptation here? Surface level common ground? Have you ever talked to other people that say, oh, we worship the same God? Talk to someone who's Muslim. Oh, we believe in Jesus Christ. Talk to a Mormon, oh, we believe in Jesus Christ. Talk to a Catholic, we believe in Jesus Christ too. Everyone believes in Jesus Christ. That's a very watered down kind of gathering of people that's saying we agree. Well, the question is, which Christ are you believing in? What does he look like? What does he stand for? What does he say? So these statements are, are made to lure Uh, um, them into compromising under the the guise of friendship and cooperation. Again, you can hear their words. This can be a wonderful bridge of outreach for us. This can be an opportunity to build a relationship with one one another while we work together. This is an opportunity to, to befriend our neighbors. It's all good. Again, the subtlety continues in their words by things like this. This would be good for both of us to have this temple restored so that we can all worship the God that we worship together. That'll be a good thing. To put it in more modern terms, just imagine all that we could do for God if the community of faith is willing to join hands together for the spiritual well being of our community. Doesn't that sound grand? If we come together, we'll show the priority of love and our compassion for one another. Don't you want the world to see that compassion, that love, and that affirmation? And of course, the answer to the question is, well, who is the God you're talking about? And what is the love and the acceptance that you're talking about? It all sounds so wonderful. But notice Zerubbabel's answer. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. There's no beating around the bush here, is there? We are building the house of God. We alone will build this house. We have the backing of Cyrus, the king. And someone reading this account might think to themselves, might recoil in shock at the words that are being said here. That's just rude. That's just unloving. That's no way to win the loss to your side. That's no way to treat your neighbor. They just want to help. They want to worship the God with you. Is Zerubbabel saying that they don't want help of any kind? Haven't they already received some help? Didn't Cyrus, a pagan leader, declare that they could go back and they could rebuild the temple and provide resources for them? Yes, yes. Well, didn't they reach out to the people of Tyre and Sidon? Didn't they hire some, some workers so that they could work on the wood and bring them back so they could have the resources for the temple? Yes, they did. Those were all absolutely necessary fundamental aids to rebuilding the temple. But what is going on here, this attempt to compromise, is not about the physical building or providing resources for the physical building. It's talking about being a part of the worship that's going to take place in this temple. It's a spiritual help. It's a spiritual partnership. This is syncretism. Let's join up. We worship the same God. Friends, a little history is important here. Israel, when they were in rebellion before they were exiled into Babylon, in their rebellion, never stopped going to the temple. But they would add the religious practices of the high places where those pagan practices took place and the worship of idols. And then, having done that, they would come to the temple and worship. This is syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of uh, the worship of other gods into the mix of your worship. It is subtraction By addition. But Yahweh is not one to be a God among many. He is the only God, and there are no other gods before him. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Zerubbabel understood that these people were not worshiping God in the same way. So now get your Bibles and turn, if you would, please, to 2 Kings Chapter 17, 2 Kings 17, there are going to be some verses on the screen, but I want you to see it for yourself, and I would encourage you to read this for yourself. It's very clear, but we have an incredible picture here of syncretism. Now, beginning at verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutah, from Ava, Hamath, and Shepharvaim, and place them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Remember, this is the the approach that the Syrians had. When they conquered, they would bring people, other people they conquered, and they they would displace them and mingle them into one place. So you have now a gathering of people from all, all different places, and the idea was to be a melting pot. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Uh, <laughs> or maybe, uh, right? But it's more, uh, what's going on here? Well, God's bringing discipline. They wouldn't worship him. He, they're in his land. And, and so what happens is the Assyrian leader, um, as, as these people settle into the, to the land, the Assyrian leader gets one of the prophets that was taken captive sends him back to Bethel, and he begins to teach the things of God to the northern people. So now they understand how to worship Yahweh properly. But notice verse 33. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom They had been carried away. And look down at verse 41. Were these people telling the truth? Did they worship the God Yahweh? Mm -hmm. Yep. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Children did likewise, children's children, as their fathers did and so they did to this day they did worship Yahweh in a manner of speaking but they worshiped him worshiped him alongside all of their other gods do you see the problem here these people are the forefathers of the new testament samaritans and were blending false religion with the worship of the one true god they added Yahweh, but never got rid of their idols. So the words are not absolute lies. They're partially true. They did worship God, but they did not worship him alone. Now, you see, friends, this is the kind of tactic that happens here. We believe in the same God as you. Why don't you want to join us? I was, I was humored, Saddened, I don't know what the word is. This is back in 2016, Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump running for the presidency. And both of them, right at the end of the 11th hour before the day of election, get up to speak. And both of them quote scripture. I mean, they want to tap in to that Christian vote. And both of them quoted scripture and completely wrenched it out of its context. <laughs> oh, they want to fool you into thinking they know what they're talking about, but they're clueless. Friends, this is syncretism. This is one of the reasons we must be careful to not join up in spiritual endeavors with Catholics and Mormons and Muslims and JWs or whatever it might be, because. God wants us to worship Him alone. You can hear the cry of the Reformers. Grace alone. Christ alone. Faith alone. Scripture alone. The glory of God alone. Now notice what I said. I want to be very, very careful here. We must be careful not to join up in spiritual endeavors with these people. And we might join politically. Our Muslim friends, they are struggling with things that are happening politically in our country because they don't want their kids to be filled with the nonsense that's happening. And so they're joining up with Christians to say, we don't want that, and we will join with you in standing against it. But they're not joining together spiritually. It's political. So Zerubbabel knows that these people are not worshiping Yahweh in the right way. Therefore, in order for Israel to have Right, worship. They must worship God in His way, according to His word, with theological purity and a desire for purity in worship. Now, friends, the corollary here is this: that the church ultimately is, is the temple. Just listen to, to, uh, to just how the church is described. The building of the temple, the house of the Lord, directly corresponds to the building of the church. Not the physical building, but the spiritual building. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the house of God, made up by living stones. And if you are a child of God, you're one of those living stones. And in Matthew 17, we find that the foundation of that temple is the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Therefore, it's vital that we protect the purity of the church. It's makeup, it's message, and it's mission. Because friends, the church is consistently pressured by those outside and those that identify as Christians, I might say inside that big umbrella, to conform to a certain ideology, and to join hands together. And if you don't, who do you think you are? Why are you so exclusive? Why don't you join us? Friends, this is a warning for all believers, but it's also a warning for us. And it's a call for spiritual leaders in the church to take heed. We need leaders who are willing to see the enemy and his subtle methods to seek to compromise the church. This is an issue for leadership. That's an issue for the whole church. But if the church is doing things right, you're going to have people that are part of the church that are not mature in the faith, and they can be easily pulled aside. But if you're in leadership, you should be able to see the error for what it is. This is what Zerubbabel and all these leaders do. They recognize this attempt to compromise. And we need leaders who who are clear in their theology, strong in their character, bold in the face of compromise. We need leaders and elders who know that their teaching of God's Word is paramount. In other words, you're shaping the congregation, you're shaping the flock with the faithful teaching of God's Word so the people can think in a right way and can understand error as they see it. That's why we don't throw people quickly into leadership in the church. That's why we take a year and a half to two years to vet, so to speak, an elder, a prospective elder. Because we want to make sure that they're the kind of person, have the kind of character and have the kind of theology that will make sure the church is is protected from this kind of compromise. Friends, there are times when narrowness and intolerance is the way of faithfulness. That's the first one. Subtlety of hatred's friendship. Now, we spent a lot of time there because this is the beginning. You you get this one wrong. You stand firm in this one. There's more to come. But oftentimes, this is where where it ends because people just give in and they compromise. So Now, verses 4 and 5. The openness of hatred's hostility. If you will not succumb to the compromise, then guess what? We're going to be triggered, and we're going to turn the dial up, not just on you leaders, but on the people. So we move from the strategy against the leaders now to these strategies against the people. And again, you can imagine the Jews thinking to themselves, wouldn't it have been better just to allow them to join us rather than to have and to endure these hardships? Why are our leaders being so stubborn? Don't they know that they are just going to make it more difficult for us? Pastor Rod, why did you have to make that biblical stand? Now we're having people that are complaining that we're unloving, and I'm part of the church, and now I'm unloving. That hasn't happened, by the way, just so you know. But these are the things that we face. See, we need to hear two things here. Opposition, Opposition to Christ and his kingdom can sound credible. It can sound credible. And many are seduced by fine-sounding words from those who claim they worship the same God. Secondly, opposition to Christ and his kingdom often works. We'll see that reality at the end of this chapter. Satan will win some battles along the way. That's why you have these four people I mentioned earlier who were martyred for standing on God's truth, because Satan will win some battles along the way. But God in his sovereignty even used those victories as means to actually build his kingdom. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Now as we look at verses 4 and 5, we'll see three more strategies. We're not going to spend as long on them as we did on the first one. The Hebrew text stresses the ongoing, wearying effect of this opposition with three participles that they indicate continual action, right? And so they reveal three progressions of hostility toward the remnant Jerusalem. The first one is this discouragement. When, then the people, so this is after Zerubbabel says no, this is how they respond. Then the people of the land discourage the people of Judah, literally, to weaken the hands. Now, we're not told specifically how, but just turn over to the book of Nehemiah. It's not too far from where you're at in the Bible there. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah's purpose, if you remember, was to go rebuild the walls. Zerubbabel's purpose is to go um, rebuild the temple. So this is future now. This is also returning from exile. But now in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we'll begin at verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that, We were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brethren and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? And what you have to put in the text here, it's not there, but I think it's appropriate, is ha, 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 okay? What are these feeble Jews doing? (laughs) Will they restore it for themselves? (laughs) Right? Will they sacrifice? What are you talking about here? Will they finish up in a day? I don't think so. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? I don't think so. There's no way. Words like that discourage. No one likes to be on the receiving end of that ridicule, mockery. What you're doing won't make any difference. You are just laboring in vain. You may try to build the walls out of this rubble, but no one, you're no, there's no way you're going to do that. I, I love what Spurgeon says, and it's a good corrector for us. Do you expect to be honored in the world where your Lord is crucified? Thanks, Spurgeon right? <laughs> That's what he, he, he does for us. Do you expect that the world around you that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ is going to honor you? Do we see this in our time? Absolutely. Most TV shows or movies present a pastor as some evil character, present Christians as either hypocrites or lunatics, extremists. It fits their narrative. During the pandemic, Christians were mocked for praying. Why are you praying? That's not going to do anything. It seems fair game to mock Christianity while respecting the beliefs of Islam and other mainstream religions. But probably where we hear it most is the language of our culture, isn't it? Where the name Jesus Christ is thrown out casually. Jesus blank. It's a mockery, isn't it? And quite frankly, we have to endure it, but it's no fun hearing it. It's discouraging. Second or third strategy here is fear. They made them afraid to build. It was purposeful, deliberate intimidation to produce fear. The world wants you to think that if your beliefs or biblical convictions go against the flow of cultural norms, that your beliefs are dangerous, offensive, and should be canceled. And if you don't go along with or support our LGBTQ affirmation, you'll be considered hateful, a bigot, and will likely lose your job. How are you going to support your family then? If you express your opinion on abortion, that abortion is murder, you're painted as a fanatic. Why? Because you lack compassion and you hate women. If you think that Jesus isn't the only way, then you're a bigot who's a hateful person who's trying to force Jesus down people's throats. See, there's always a way that they're just going to come and kind of speak things that just create fear. Well, I don't want to be that and I don't want to be that. See, being faithful to God in the workplace can cost you your job. Can put your family in danger. Could potentially, in years to come, result in a fine or a prison sentence. As a pastor, will being faithful to God cause you to lose your pastorate? <laughs> if I stood up here and said just simply Christianity 101 stuff, could it? Could it mean that I could be arrested for saying that? Possible. Could it affect your church attendance? Might mean you have to look for a new place to worship. Friends, you certainly don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? See, these are all fearful tactics to stop you from doing what God has called you to do. Strategy number four misinformation, false accusation. They hired counselors to frustrate them. Oh, these people just want to build a name for themselves. They're going to rebel against the king, they say. They're lining their pockets with the construction money. Rumors, 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 and soon people begin to believe them. Here are some pieces of, of misinformation that are often thrown out there. That church just wants your money. You heard that before? No, we don't. What you do with your money is between you and God. But we will teach you what God's word says about how you are to handle your money. And we do have an expectation of those in leadership in particular to be faithful in their giving. But it's up to you what you do. The weight of Scripture is going to be what you have to be accountable to. How about this one? The Bible is just a collection of man's thoughts that the church uses to seek to control other people. Again, you're mixing and twisting facts and what Christians actually believe. The question is, often if someone says something like that is, have you read the Word of God From its beginning all the way to its end, thoughtfully. Well, yeah, I've read the Bible, right? How many Christians have actually read the Bible? Probably not a ton. And if someone's not a Christian, the likelihood that they've actually read the Bible with a a real thought and intent to say, what is this talking about, is pretty unlikely. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I've read the Bible. No, they've read bits and pieces, what they think it says, right? So yes, there are many of man's thoughts. But understand this: how God worked in giving us His Word is that He breathed out His Word through the words that men wrote and spoke. It was God behind them. He was the the Scriptures say was He born along by the Spirit. These men wrote these truths. So it's not just man's ideas; these are God's ideas, and certainly because they're God's ideas, we want to warn people, we want to teach people, we want to help people. So yeah, we're going to teach what it says. Three. You guys are just oppressive to women. You won't even allow them to preach or serve as elders. Well, that's twisting of the facts. We want to liberate women to serve in every way that God has created them to serve. But there are two roles in Scripture specifically that are unique male roles, that of pastor, teacher, elder, and the role of preaching. Now, this is what God's Word says. This is what we have to then affirm. But as a church, we want women to serve in whatever way possible that God has gifted them to serve. Here's another one. You are so arrogant to think that you are better than everyone else. No, you have that wrong again. <laughs> True Christians recognize they are the vilest of sinners, saved by grace, and we have to consistently repent of our sin. They don't think we're better. You Christians hate everyone who's not like you. Muslims, Jews, Catholics, LGBT crowd. Even Democrats. Now, friends, that's far from the truth. All of those people I just mentioned there, I would love for them to come and to sit in a time of worship here at Gateway. But here's the deal. We're not going to soften what God's Word says. We're going to say what it says. We're we're not going to adjust God's Word to fit what people want to hear. In fact, Scripture says don't ever do that. And if you do that, get off of the pulpit. I remember when I was in Russia a number of years ago in U'ufa, and um, there it's the Baptist Union that basically is the, the Protestant structure through which things work. And there was such a hatred against the church that as the church was preparing for camp in the summer for the kids, because they would do it regularly every summer, commercials would be put on TV saying, don't allow your kids to go with those Baptists. They want to brainwash and kidnap your children. Misinformation. Misinformation. There's a lot more we could say about that. But friends, the world around us will stoop to bring discouragement, seek to cause fear, use misinformation, false accusations, but we must not throw in the towel. These are just simply Christianity 101 issues. If the world hates you, know that it hated Christ first. Now here's the third thing. The persistence of hatred's opposition. This is this this one little kind of parenthetical part that he puts in there, bringing it and showing how how opposition to, to the progress of God continues on through the years, from Xerxes to Artaxerxes. And it comes really in, in, in more official capacities. These people here write this letter to Artaxerxes. If you notice in verse, in, um, in verse uh, 12, it says, Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you uh, have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, customer toll and the royal revenue will be impaired. Again, misinformation, it's baseless, this wasn't happening, but it's like, oh, panic for the, for the king there, right? And they're writing back to Cyrus. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 14. It's kind of a strange statement. They say, we eat the salt of the palace. Now, there's a word picture for you, right? I mean, well, this is like, you know, is it a gingerbread house or something like that? No, we eat the salt of the palace, That's an old expression that means that we are loyal to you. The Egyptians made salt, a royal monopoly. And perhaps the Persians had also, but our English word salary comes from this word uh, salarium, which was the ration given to soldiers. This is where also we get the expression, a man is not worth his salt. He is not loyal. And they're saying... O king, we eat the salt of the palace, which means we are being loyal to you, and so we're reporting these things as loyal subjects of yours. They neglected to mention Jeremiah 29.7, where Jeremiah says to those people, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find... uh, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, so this is kind of a backdrop to this little section. Here are the two strategies. Strategy number one. If you can't get them with compromise, and you can't get them with discouragement, and you can't get them with fear, and you can't get them with misinformation, then you can get them with collaborative opposition. I just want you to pick the picture here and see what's going on. Look at verse 8. I want you to see what's happening here. Rahim the commander, this is the beginning, this is the letter, Rahim the commander and Shimshay the the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rahim the commander, Shimshay the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, the Elamites, the rest of the nations whom, uh, whom the great and noble Osnapper are deported and settled into the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province of uh, beyond the river. They're all writing this. They're affirming this. They've put their name to this. All of these people agree with these accusations. All of these people agree with these assessments. In our modern context, multiple parties are joining and affirming together that you Christians are guilty of bringing offense PBS, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, the New York Times, USA Today, the San Francisco Chronicle, UC Berkeley, Stanford, UC Davis, Cal State, East Bay, Harvard, Columbia, Yale, Brown University, the ACLU, the BLM, LGBTQ, NAACP, Google, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, Target, Costco, Macy's, Budweiser, the governor, the president, the vice president, even the pope. They're all standing against you. See, this is the pressure of collaborative opposition. Everyone else in this room would say that you're wrong. I go back to Patrick Hamilton. This is the truth. George Wishart, this is the truth. Luther, this is the truth. So help me God. Look, the truth remains the truth regardless of the masses turning against you. See, they're all saying we are locked in arms to say that you Christians are a problem in our society and you have to be stopped. Everyone is against Yahweh. The majority must be right. These Jews or Christians are all the source of trouble. The strategy says look around. Everyone in this room thinks that you Christians view Views are wrong, unloving, and a menace to society. you feel that? Strategy number five. Here's the last one. If all these strategies don't exist, or don't work, I should say, they don't produce what the enemies want it to produce, then we will try to use the law to force their hand. And if the laws are not on the books, then we will find ways to pass laws so that Christians are forced to do what we demand. And they will say, you Christians pride yourself on being law-abiding citizens, so now you must obey the laws of the land. Now see, in, in the story that we have here, they turn now and they say, well, let's use the law against the Jews. Government... Laws, you have to obey them. You have to comply. You have to do what you are told. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Only the strong arm of the law, even if it's factually baseless. So you must bake me a cake. You must recognize gay marriage. It is the law of the land. You must call delusional people by their pronouns. It's law. But friends, if obeying the law forces me to act against Christ and his word, then I must obey Christ first. Hear that. We must be law-abiding citizens in every way possible. But if that law undermines what Christ has called me to do to live as one of his children that I must obey Christ first and my desire is to obey Christ with an attitude that is respectful to the degree that I can in that particular context in fact we learned from Stuart Scott something really really helpful before God, I must not bear false witness. I must not claim something to be good or true when God in Scripture clearly says otherwise. So if someone wants to be called something other than they really are, I am bearing false witness by identifying them with a name or a gender that they are delusioned with not true you don't have to be arrogant about it but the point is don't bear false witness that's one of the ten commandments by the way friends the end of this chapter is sobering isn't it and it should be then the work on the house of god that is in jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of darius king of persia Darius didn't come after Xerxes or Artaxerxes he comes before them so you see how this is this is the story is sandwiched here in the chronology of things the building of the temple stopped for 16 years due to the ongoing hatred of the enemy this is not a great time for the people of Israel they faced a lot of challenges how did the people respond well, it's easy for us to mistakenly assume that if the Lord is in something, we won't have hassles or setbacks and frustrations in getting it done. Again, that's the, uh, that's the foolishness of, might want to say, the thinking of much of the American church. It's always going to be positive. But how do they respond? Well, first of all, they started with resilience, right? But then they started to give things up. There must be rationalization and then ultimately distraction. We know that from the prophetical books we'll be talking about that next week but I want to finish here with some strategies for facing the enemy I want us to think through what we just read these six strategies are against the people of God wanting to do the work of God and they're going to run into these obstacles and they're going to run into these strategies they're going to run into this opposition so how do we then respond well first of all We're to look to Christ. Why? Because he suffered. Oh, when he first came on the scene, what did the religious establishment do? They said, oh, there's this rabbi, and he's in Galilee. We're going to go and listen to him and see what he has to say. So they go, if you remember, and they sit and they listen. But then Jesus starts poking holes in their distorted Judaism. And what happened? he's not one of us so now we're going to turn on him and they use all sorts of tools discouragement fear they use misrepresentation false accusations then they get a see to get a, a crowd against him and people yelling crucify him crucify him and ultimately they tried to use Roman law against him. He is a person who is stirring up rebellion. Now, you're the ones who have stirred up the rebellion. But you see, see how this all works. The same kind of struggles, the same kind of, uh, uh, of strategies used against Jesus Christ were the same strategies that were be, being used there. And they're the same kind of strategies, friends, that we face. Look to Christ. He suffered. Secondly, Know the enemy. And that's been part of the reason why we've walked through here is to say, look, the enemy, uh, God wants us to understand the enemy. He wants to understand, us to understand those strategies so that we aren't caught captive to them. So as it says up there, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Look, I want you to know good theology. Trust me. But I also want you to know how Satan works. Here's the third thing. Endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the passage of Scripture there. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Let me just read it here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus or Christ Jesus. In other words, the idea there is, Endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Then he gives three illustrations of what that looks like. A soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What Paul's getting at here is this. The soldier seeks to please his commanding officer. So in other words, follow Christ as your commanding officer with a single-minded devotion. That's the point here. Secondly, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And the point here that he's making is an athlete then keeps the rules. Well, whose rules? It's not the world's rules. Christ rules. Allow Christ to guide you. Allow Christ to be the one who's setting out what is good and right, and this is what you need to follow. And the farmer seeks to bear fruit through hard work. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of his crops. In other words, work hard with your pursuit of Christ and your mission and your witness. Work hard. So please the master, follow the rules of the master, reflect the master in the way you live, in your mission and how you relate to others by sharing the gospel. This is how we stand. This is how we endure with the onslaught of opposition that we face. Now, friends, this is a sober text, isn't it? There's not a lot of happy clappiness in this, but it's a warning for us, and it's a wake-up for us to say, this is the kind of world that we live in. There are people who are opposed to who we are and to the person we identify with and what, what we see as the values for living our lives for the glory of God. And they want to shut you up and shut you down. And they're going to be persistent in that. Do we give up? The answer is no. We stand firm. We do it for the glory of God. Lord, help us today. There's a lot more that you would want to say on this topic. But Lord, help us to be mindful of these various strategies that the world uses to seek to derail us from simply living our lives for you. Lord, help us to not be discouraged by even a a sermon like this. But help us to feel the weight of the gravity of what your word reveals so that we can then enter into a right stance, Lord, with your help in the face of this kind of opposition. Lord, our natural tendency, our our sinful tendency is to want to find some kind of collaborative middle ground so that we don't have to face and we don't have to suffer, we don't have to endure. But Lord, in doing that, We're giving up the truth. Causing damage to our own walk with you. We're causing damage to our children and what we're trying to model for them. Causing damage to fellow believers in Christ. Lord, help us to stand for your truth in such a way that we are respectful, that we are loving, that we're gracious. But Lord, it's clear that you are the one that we're seeking to honor. Oh Lord, give us wisdom here. May we marinate on these things, Lord, in such a way that we can, we can form a, a right understanding of what, you, of what you've called us to. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.